Well, hello and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus and I'm glad that you've joined me for this episode as we continue in this series in Matthew 24, looking at the last days according to Jesus and what he said and what he predicted about the end of the age. We saw uh, how important it is to interpret the text on its own basis, on its own terms, according to what was intended uh, and what was to be received by the original audience. So many modern day interpreters go astray, so many modern day Christians go astray by not paying full attention to what the original context of a passage was. So in this series in particular, we're taking that seriously, looking at what Jesus said, taking his words at face value seriously as to what he actually meant to the original hearers of his day. So in the first episode, we laid out the case that when Jesus said that all these things that he predicted in Matthew 24 would take place before this generation passed away, that he meant it for the people living in his day. We saw also that the end that he predicted was not the end of the world, but rather the end of the Jewish age. He used a different word, not cosmos, but aeon, right? In our third episode, we looked at some of the signs of the end that he was predicting, wars, famines, earthquakes, and persecution, and saw that from the testimony of history that those things indeed took place just as Jesus said in the first century leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And our last episode uh, revealed that the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation, that's a term that's been debated so much, and the great tribulation uh, actually was in the Roman siege of the city of Jerusalem and the horrors which took place during that. And we cited from many of the historic sources, especially from Josephus, to show that actually what Jesus said would take place really did take place word for word, fulfilling his prophecies. In this episode, we're going to be examining a section of this text that seems to reference the end of the physical universe to many modern day readers. And surely, this section hasn't been filled, has it, right? It looks like it, it means the, the, the end of the physical universe as we know it in terms of sun and moon and stars falling and all this stuff happening. It's, it really seems like there's no way this could have possibly been fulfilled, right? Well, we'll also look at what's meant by the sign of the Son of Man and angels gathering the elect. All of this in this episode, we've got a lot to cover. So let's jump in. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. All right, so I hope you've been enjoying this deep dive. Let's start by reading the text. We're going to be reading from Matthew 24, verses 29 to 35. And it reads this way. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as his branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, 
this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, so Mr. Podcast Man, what about the language of the dimming out of the sun and moon and stars falling from heaven? This sounds, you know, like apocalypse and the end of the world for sure. You know, popular writings and media like the Left Behind series envision a cataclysmic destruction of the physical elements, right? I remember when I was a boy, hearing Christians use this passage to say that the end of the world will be a total destruction and recreation from scratch of the physical universe. But is this really what it means? Let's take a closer look at this. Let's look at, firstly, the cosmic deconstruction language, uh, beginning in verse 29. Now, commentator R.T. France, he gives a good admonition to us in his commentary on Matthew. He says this, quote, At this point, I would simply urge the reader to refrain from prejudging the issue simply because this exegesis conflicts with the traditional interpretation and to try to hear Jesus' words as they would have been heard by his Jewish disciples as they listened to to this answer to their double question, as yet uninfluenced by a tradition which conditions Christian readers now to assume that the stars falling from heaven and the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven can only refer to the end of the world and the parousia. So we need to hear these words as the Jews of that time would hear it by comparing it with the Old Testament language. Remember, scripture interprets scripture. And in scripture, the language of sun, moon, and stars is actually rooted in Genesis 1 verses 14 to 16, where these elements are elements that are to govern the times and seasons. Now, later, these heavenly lights are used as metaphors to speak of earthly authorities and governors. Thus, when God comes to you know, judge against earthly authorities and in judgment, the Old Testament prophets use what is known as cosmic deconstruction language. That's really important, a very important term for you to understand that this is frequent in Old Testament prophecy, cosmic deconstruction language. It's very similar to the collapsing universe terminology that we find here in Matthew 24. Thus, Jesus, in using this sort of language in Matthew 24, 29, is actually drawing on familiar Old Testament texts. And a lot of you know, modern readers don't pick up on this because we're not familiar with our Old Testament. And if we were, all, were familiar with our Old Testament as the Jews of Jesus' days would have been, right, then we would pick up on this. In fact, Jesus quotes from some of these texts almost verbatim. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples to illustrate this, right? Because I know you're probably listening and you're a little bit skeptical right now. So take, for example, prophesying the fall of Babylon to the Medes in 539 BC, Isaiah wrote these words. He said, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, right? day of the Lord, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth with their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That's Isaiah 13, verses 9 to 10, right? So when Babylon fell, stars, moon, and sun, they didn't literally go dark, right? This was a metaphor. This was a prophetic metaphor for God, you know, judging this nation. Remember what stars, moon, and sun represent, right? They're governing bodies. Isaiah later actually prophesies the fall of Edom in the same sort of terms of decreation. He says this, quote, and all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away 
as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from this fig tree. That's Isaiah 34 verse 4. Old Testament text, well known. This is how prophets prophesied judgment against cities, right? So when Edom fell, the sky was not literally rolled up like a scroll. This prophetic language was meant to vividly communicate the calamity of their judgment. Isaiah's contemporary, actually, the prophet Amos. So Isaiah is not the only one who uses this, this sort of language in prophesying destruction. The prophet Amos, he foretold the doom of Samaria in uh, 722 BC in very much the same way. Hear it here. Okay. So it says this, Amos says this, quote, and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I shall make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Amos 8, 9. That's yet another example. Let me give you another example, right? From the prophet Ezekiel, who predicted the destruction of Egypt. God said this through Ezekiel, quote, and when I extinguish you, speaking to uh, Egypt, right? And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I'll cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light and the shining lights in heavens. I will darken over you and I will set darkness upon your land, declares the Lord God. That's Ezekiel 32 verses 7 to 8, right? The heavenly lights did not literally go out when Egypt was destroyed. This is a prophetic metaphor, a way of saying that God was going to take their lights out, right? That's, that's literally what these prophets are doing when they use this cosmic deconstruction sort of language. This is God pr- pronouncing judgment upon them and saying, hey, I'm going to take your lights out. Right? You can also see similar cosmic deconstruction language in prophecies concerning the fall of national leaders, such as in Jeremiah 4 verses 1 to 6 and 23 to 28 concerning Judah. Also, you can see it in, in Joel verse, uh, chapter 3 verses 15 to 16 concerning the nations. And also in Nahum uh, chapter 1 verses 1 to 5 concerning Nineveh. Right? So as David Chilton rightly notes, he says this, that it must be stressed that none of these events literally took place. God did not intend anyone to place a literalist construction on these statements. Poetically, however, all of these things did happen. As far as these wicked nations were concerned, the lights went out, right? This is prophetic language. We have to understand this genre of prophetic literature. Oftentimes, prophets use poetic metaphor to pronounce judgment against nations. R.T. France, in his commentary on Matthew, similarly, he notes this, quote, the cosmic language of 24 verse 29 is drawn directly from Old Testament prophetic passages where it functions not to predict the physical dissolution of the universe, but as a symbolic representation of catastrophic political changes within history. So therefore, here in Matthew 24, Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh incarnate, he's simply using the same kind of language that he used as Yahweh throughout the whole Old Testament through his prophets to foretell of judgment upon a city and its leaders. So instead of Old Testament's prophets seeing it, it's coming direct now from the lips of Yahweh in, 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 in incarnate in Jesus, right? As he pronounces judgment on unfaithful Israel who rejected him. A lot of modern day Christians just totally miss this because we don't study our Old Testament, right? We were not as familiar with the Old Testament as we should, but you literally cannot understand the New Testament rightly without a proper grasp of the Old Testament. And here, Jesus is using Old Testament language. So we should assume continuity. We should assume the same hermeneutic that we would use to interpret those Old Testament texts. We should use it now 
as Jesus is saying this, he's boring from Old Testament language as Yahweh incarnate. He would have been saying the same thing through his prophets in the Old Testament as he is right now saying to the Jews of his day, right? So when he says to them that the sun, moon, and stars are going to not give their light, he's not talking about the physical dissolution of the universe. He's simply using prophetic metaphor, prophetic poetry to say, I'm going to turn your lights out. This is lights out for you guys. How about the sign of the Son of Man in heaven? Verse 30. Okay, so what is the sign of the Son of Man in heaven? So here again, we have to pay attention to what the original Greek actually meant to communicate because some of our English translations can oftentimes be unclear on this, right? So commentator R.C.H. Lenski, he actually points this out. He says, quote, in the sign of the Son of Man, the genitive is subjective. The sign by which he shows his presence, not objective. The sign by, to which, um, which points to him as being about to come, right? So this, therefore, is what, what's in view here in this clause is the Son of Man's presence or location, not his being about to come, okay? So that's really important to understand in what's trying to be communicated is what's in view is the Son of Man's presence or location, not that he's about to come, okay? Furthermore, many people read this verse and assume that it is the sign that is in the sky, right? The ESV and some other translations read like this. They say, um, then it will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, right? Which makes it seem like the sign is what's in heaven. However, when we look at the Greek text, a word-for-word translation would actually read this way. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Right? So notice that the location is heaven, right? And that it is not the sign that is in heaven, but rather the Son of Man who is in heaven. Okay? The sign simply testifies to the fact that the Son of Man is in heaven. That's really important to properly understand this text. It's not the sign that's in heaven, it's actually the Son of Man that's in heaven. And the sign testifies to the fact that he is in heaven. Right? And this is a fulfillment of Daniel's vision of the Son of Man receiving power and dominion in Daniel 7. Now, many people think that the coming on the clouds of the Son of Man is Jesus coming down to earth again at his final coming. Right? That's the popular interpretation of this uh, verse. That's wrong, though. Right? How, this is, that, that's actually not that's exactly the opposite of what this is. That's not what it's saying. You see, because in Daniel 7, and if you want to fact check me, just go there, right? In Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming on the clouds was not him coming down to earth, but rather it's when he goes up to approach the Ancient of Days, God the Father in heaven, and to receive his kingdom. As R.T. France, again, helpfully comments, he says this, the language of 24 verse 30 is closely modeled to that of Daniel 7, 13 to 14, where, as we have seen in the above relationship to 10 verse 23, the coming, not parousia, of the Son of Man into the presence of God, not to earth, speaks of vindication and enthronement. We shall see very similar language used by Jesus in uh, chapter 26 verse 64 with reference to what his judges will be able to see from now on, not in the indefinite future. And the close linking of such language with a specific timescale within the living generation which we have noted already at 10.23 uh, and 16.28, is confirmed also in this context by the explicit this generation prediction in 24.34. 
right? And David Chilton, he actually clarifies on this point. He says that the point is simply that this great judgment upon Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple will be the sign that Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven at the Father's right hand, ruling over the nations and bringing vengeance upon his enemies. That's in Chilton's Paradise Restored, uh, page 96. Now, the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction over Jerusalem and the temple is the sign that the Son of Man, whom these unfaithful Jews who he was talking to, right, and who had crucified him, that he was no longer a defeated messianic pretender, but now was risen and in heaven exercising power and judgment. This causes the Jewish tribes of the land, not earth, again, that's important to understand in the original uh, Greek there, it's, you know, land, not earth, right? And this, so that, that sign causes the Jewish tribes of the land to mourn. Dr. Gentry actually comments this way. He says, um, through these events, the Jews were to see the Son of Man in his judgment coming in terrifying cloud glory. Clouds are symbols of divine majesty, often entailing stormy destructions. And you can see Isaiah 19, 1, Psalm 18, verses 10 to 4, Lamentations 2, 1, and Ezekiel 30, verses 3 to 5 for that. The members of the Sanhedrin and others would experience such in their lifetimes. You see that in Matthew 26, uh, verse 64, Mark 9, 1, Revelation 1, 7, Revelation 1, 1, and 3, right? Now, how about this phrase? I just mentioned it before, but let's clarify it a little bit more. All the tribes of the land from verse 30, right? So um, some modern interpreters try to argue that this passage speaks of a time when the whole globe will see Jesus coming in glory on the clouds. I remember growing up and that was the, that was the popular interpretation, right? We thought, oh, well, you know, now we live in the age of TV and live streaming and stuff, right? So now we can see when Jesus comes physically, he's going to be, I guess, live streamed all over the world and all the tribes of the earth will see him, right? That was the typical interpretation that I understood anyways, growing up. However, the word actually translated here as earth is better rendered as land, right? Referring to the local region of Jerusalem. And this is evident actually from the context. So J. Stuart Russell in his book, The Parousia, he comments this, he says, but the scene of the great tribulation is undeniably Jerusalem and Judea. And you can see verse 15 and 16 for that. So that no break in the subject of the discourse is allowable. Again, in verse 30, we read that all the tribes of the land, right? And there the words geese, right? Shall mourn, referring evidently to the population of the land of Judea. And nothing can be more forced and unnatural than to make it include, as John Peter Lang does, all the races and peoples of the globe. The restricted sense of the word gay, land, right? In the New Testament, it's common. And when connected, as it is here, with the word tribes, right, fulai, it, its limitation to the land of Israel is obvious, right? This passage is also a fulfillment, by the way. And again, why we need to know our Old Testament. This passage is a fulfillment of Zechariah 12, verse, verse 10 and onward. And I'm going to just read it for you here. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon and in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, there's that phrase, the land shall mourn 
each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and the wives by themselves. So this passage is also quoted again by Jesus, actually, in Revelation 1.7. It says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So ask yourself, who is the ones who pierced him? Those are the eyes who will see him, right? And all the tribes of the earth or the land will wail on, his, on account of him. Now notice, it's the ones who pierced him, right? Who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? Answer, the unbelieving Jews of the first century. Thus, this is not a global event, but a local one. It is the Jewish tribes who have rejected the Messiah, who will see the sign that lets them know that the Son of Man is indeed seated at the right hand of glory in heaven, as he said to them, to their faces that they would see. Right? However, that's not all there is to this. Though Jesus was referring to the fact that these uh, things would prove that he was in heaven exercising power, there were actual signs in the skies of Jerusalem, which were actually historically recorded. This is actually really mind-blowing. When I first read this, I was like, whoa, crazy. So let's talk a little bit about the signs in heaven that was recorded. Now, leading up to Jerusalem's fall, there were several extremely odd and ominous signs in the skies of the first century in Jerusalem, right? There was a comet, for example, that appeared around 60 AD during Nero's reign. And comets in the sky were often taken as an omen of a coming calamity in those days or a sign of a major change in the political structure. The historian Tacitus actually wrote that upon this sign, people had already begun to ask who would succeed Nero, which was something Nero actually took very seriously. Another historian, Suetonius, recorded that Nero banished and starved to death or poisoned the children of condemned men to try to stamp out any would-be threats to his reign. Interestingly, Halley's Comet appeared in the sky in 66 AD, not long after Nero had committed suicide. Now, Josephus, he actually comments on the Jews' willful ignorance of these heavenly signs. He says this in his Volume 6 of Wars of the Jews. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers, and such as be belied God himself, while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so plainly foretell their future desolation. But like men infatuated, without either eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. Thus there, were, there was a star resembling a sword, which stood over the city, and a comet that continued a whole year. Thus also, before the Jews' rebellion, and before these, those commotions which, which preceded the war, when the people were come in great clouds to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the eighth day of the month of Xanthicus, or Nisan, and at the ninth hour of the night, so great a light shone around the altar and the holy house that it appeared to be bright daytime, which light lasted for half an hour. This light seemed to be a good sign to the unskillful, but was so interpreted by the sacred scribes as to portend those events that followed immediately upon it. At the same festival also a heifer, as she was led by the high priest to be sacrificed, brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. So it's very interesting that during this very important period of redemptive history, that there are these very, very odd signs recorded. And these weren't only recorded by Josephus, right? You could maybe dismiss him as a crazy Jew um, if he was the only one recording these signs. But 
Like some would say that he was just a superstitious Jew looking for signs or making up things, right? But the Roman historian Tacitus, right, who wouldn't have any real reason for making up these things, doesn't serve his purposes. Uh, So Tacitus, he affirms Josephus's testimony. He says this, quote, in his histories, volume one, he says, the history on which I am entering is that of a period of rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There, there were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. The sea was filled with exiles, its cliffs made foul with the bodies, bodies of the dead. In Rome, there was a more awful cruelty. Besides the manifold mis- misfortunes that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on the earth, warnings given by thunderbolts and prophecies of the future, both joyful and gloomy, uncertain and, cl- and clear. For never was it more fully prov- proved by awful disasters of the Roman people or by indubitable signs that the gods care not for our safety, but for our punishment. Perhaps, you know, maybe one of the most greatest and most bizarre of these heavenly signs that was recorded is this account from Josephus, who himself was hesitant even to describe it because of his incredulity. He writes this in his Wars of the Jews, uh, volume one is also in volume six um, a bit. So he says this, quote, Besides these, a few days after that feast, on the one and twentieth day of the month of Artemisus, Jair, sorry, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, Chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. Moreover, at the feast, which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner uh, court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. It's quite remarkable, the similarity of this account that, has, that it has with the prophet Ezekiel, as he records um, about this heavenly vision of God's judgment against unfaithful Israel and the chariot throne of God departing the temple. And if you want to read that, go to Ezekiel 1 verses 22 to 28 and chapter 10 verses 15 to 19. Right? And there, um, it's heading east to rest on the Mount of Olives. And what is significant about the similarity to, G- to Ezekiel's vision is that his vision was during the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 BC. And this earlier destruction was marked by that sort of vision. It's also remarkable that this incident is not only recorded by Josephus, but also by the Roman historian Tacitus, who, though he was an unbelieving pagan, corroborates this account. And furthermore, Jesus, as Yahweh incarnate, pronounces judgment again upon unfaithful Israel and then departs and goes east to rest upon the Mount of Olives, just as Yahweh did in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, right? Like, you can't miss these Old Testament allusions, right? Again, We need to study our Old Testament. 
So therefore, with the destruction of the temple, God was signaling his judgment against the Jews who had rejected his Messiah. And this was the end of the old covenant temple age and the ushering in of the new. Right? Jesus Christ was the once for all sacrifice, Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 18, right? which made obsolete that old order. And indeed, this is actually what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Right? So hopefully that makes that part clear. Let's now deal with the gathering of the elect in verse 31, right? Because verse 31 to our modern ears sounds very much like a real end times verse to modern readers, right? It speaks about angels gathering the elect from all over the globe with a loud trumpet call, right? Surely that has to be the last trumpet and the rapture, right? Well, not exactly. The Greek word, the Greek word actually used there, angelos, which is often translated as angel in modern translation, also simply means messenger and can simply refer to a human messenger. So for example, in Luke 9.52, right, Jesus sends messengers, angelos, angeloi, right, ahead of him. In Luke 7.24, John the Baptist sends his disciples as messengers, angeloi, right? And in Matthew 11.10, Jesus calls John the Baptist his messenger, Angelos, same word, right? The word simply means messenger, whether heavenly or earthly, right? So it could be used for angelic um, messengers or earthly messengers. And it's the context that has to determine its proper understanding. Now, in light of everything that we've seen in this series, this context seems more natural to assume that Jesus is speaking about widespread evangelism throughout the Roman Empire to follow Jerusalem's destruction through his messengers, his disciples. Right? The verb used for gather is also significant here. Right? So this verb here, episinago, right, is a compound verb of epi, which is like on, right, and sunago, which is to gather or to assemble. Right? That second half of the, the verb probably sounds very similar, um, familiar to, right? Sunago, which literally means to synagogue. That's where we get our word synagogue, right? Now, David Chilton, he comments and is helpful. He says that the meaning is that the with the destruction of the temple and of the old covenant system, the Lord sends out his messengers to gather his elect uh, people into his new synagogue. Jesus is actually quoting from Moses, who had promised, if your outcasts are at the ends of heaven, from there, the Lord, your God, will synagogue you. And from there, he will take you. That's Deuteronomy uh, 30 verse 4 from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Neither text has, a stat, has anything to do with the rapture. Both are concerned with the restoration and establishment of God's house, the organized congregation of his covenant people. That's from Chilton's Paradise Restored. Uh, and in the chapter before, Jesus had just lamented over Jerusalem that he desired to synagogue or to gather them together like a mother hen with her chicks, but they were not willing. And so he pronounces judgment. He says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That's Matthew 23 verses 37, 38, right? Because the Jews refused to be synagogued by their Messiah, Jesus Christ, their temple was destroyed and a new synagogue would be formed, which is the church, the New Testament church, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 3 verse 16, that the church is actually God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you uh, and, that, and in 
um, chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, he says that the bodies of individual believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, as God's Spirit departed from the physical temple at its destruction, he had formed a new and better temple, abiding one, in the church. Now, Dr. Gentry comments this way. He says, Matthew 24, 31 portrays the ultimate jubilee of salvation, decorated with imagery from Leviticus 25. Following upon the collapse of the temple order, Christ's messengers will go forth powerfully trumpeting the gospel of salvific liberation. See Luke 4, verses 16 to 21, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, and also Leviticus 25, verses 9 and 10. Through gospel preaching, the elect are gathered into the kingdom of God from the four corners of the world, from horizon to horizon. That's from uh, Dr. Gentry's book, He Shall Have Dominion. Really great book. Go pick it up and read it. This indeed is actually what's happened since then, right? Christ's disciples, as his messengers, have been sent out to gather God's elect through the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God all the way to the ends of the earth, right? This is how we should interpret this, this verse. Now, how about the lessons from the fig tree, right? So let's look at verses 32 to 35, right? There's been many end times preachers who have called their generation the fig tree gener generation, implying that they uh, expected the end of the world to happen in their lifetimes, right? And today, many Christians still think this way. Some modern apocalyptic preachers and charlatans have even capitalized on this to sell apocalypse clip um, kits, actually, to people expecting the imminent end of the world. If you don't believe me, go look them up on YouTube. There's some pretty like downright ridiculous ads for these apocalypse kits right? that uh, these people are selling uh, to people, I guess, who are awaiting the rapture any moment. Right? As to why you would need an apocalypse kit if the rapture was happening, I don't know. But anyways, um, yet again, this, this misses Jesus' point. Right? Jesus' little parable in verses 32 to 35 were the people of his D, right? He was saying that to the people in front of him as his contemporaries. His analogy is that just as they know that summer is coming when the fig tree puts out its leaves, right? So too, all the signs he had predicted prior would warn them that he is near at the very gates. Judgment was coming soon. He affirmed to the people standing there that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place in verse 34. And he guarantees the sureness of his word in verse 35. So why else would he introduce this saying with, truly, I say to you, if not that the disciples would be actually incredulous at such dire prophecies to befall their beloved city and temple, right? Jesus seems to need to reassure them that like, no, 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 take this seriously, guys. What I said about the destruction of this temple is really, really going to happen, right? Jesus' language, it has to be emphatically urgent to his disciples about the nearness of these things. This language would be strange, though, if Jesus meant to speak of an event that was thousands of years in the future to his disciples that he was talking to. Like, just imagine that. You know, Jesus' disciples just asked him about his prediction of the temple's destruction in, like, you know, that they were literally standing in front of. And then he goes on and on about something that was going to happen thousands of years in the future. Like, wouldn't that be a little bit strange? Yet that's exactly what a lot of Christians today think that this verse means, right? Um, as we saw in our first episode, and if you missed that, again, please go back and listen to those earlier episodes because a lot of what I'm saying is building on those, right? When, you know, when Jesus said this generation, he meant his contemporaries. 
right? He meant, and when he said near and at the very gates, right? Sig- that those were signals of the closeness of those events to his original audience, right? What, what possible significance would near and at the very gates have if he meant hundreds and thousands of years later? That's not near by any reasonable standard of, la- of language, right? If we cannot take Jesus' words seriously and ignore these specific time references to the nearness of the events to his original hearers, Either they happened and Jesus is who he said he is, or they didn't, and he's a false prophet and his words can't be trusted. However, what he said would happen did actually happen. And the disciples took his words seriously, which spurred their urgency to evangelize and to spread the message throughout the entire Roman Empire. Now for us today, because we know that the great tribulation which fell upon Jerusalem as Jesus promised actually did happen, we have such a great confidence that he does in fact have all authority in heaven and on earth. And he sends us now with the promise of his presence to disciple the nations. So how much greater should our urgency be to win the nations to Christ than even those first disciples? So therefore, apathy towards winning the nations and bringing every culture in submission to Christ is not warranted, nor is it even Christian, right? So let's go fight that good fight for the the faith and for the glory of God. Right? And let's leave behind these erroneous interpretations of Matthew 24 and Jesus' words. Let's take seriously what Jesus says when he says this generation, when he's talking to the people in front of him. Let's not try to twist the grammar. Let's not try to make the words mean something else. And let's also see the history. So much of this is just because we're really bad students of history. But, you know, We should see how Christ's words were actually fulfilled in history and do like the early Christians did and use this as an apologetic to show that Jesus really is the Messiah, that what he said would come true actually did come true. We have amazing historical records preserved to, to validify the veracity of these things, right? Let's not forget those things, okay? Now, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful in this particular passage, which is often very uh, challenging to a lot of, of, of modern Christians to interpret and to give an account for. But again, as we saw, there's recorded in history, its fulfillment. And then we see from the Old Testament that scripture interprets scripture, that Jesus was simply using language from the Old Testament. So we should interpret it the same way as we would those Old Testament passages, right? When God destroyed Babylon, he didn't literally, you know, deconstruct the universe, right? He was using cosmic deconstruction, poetic language to communicate something true that he was going to actually judge those nations, those, those cities, right? And that, that cosmic deconstruction language was simply him saying, I'm going to turn your lights out, right? And Jesus being Yahweh incarnate says the same thing here. Anyways, so I hope this all has been helpful to you. We have one more in this series in Matthew 24. In the last episode of this series, we're going to take a look at the, the, the ending bit of Matthew 24 in a passage that many have uh, believed actually teaches the, the sudden rapture of the church. And we're going to see that that's also, unfortunately, a uninformed and wrong interpretation of that passage. So stay tuned for the next one. And if you found this episode or any of the others helpful, and you want to discuss it with some of your friends, please share it around, right? And I hope that this can provide some good food for thought as you discuss these important matters. Until next time, soli deo gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. 
If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.